Welcome to Viewpoints listeners, I'm your host, Henry Grossick. It's me a great pleasure to welcome back to Viewpoints, Adam Voigt. Adam is the founder and CEO of Real Schools. Welcome, Adam. And you do work in the, the other space, um, which, which is in the, I guess, the well-being of, of kids, restorative practices. Uh. Mm. Yeah, probably uh, about 80% of our schools that are in school culture partnerships have a, at least an intention or um, an element of their partnership that's connected to practising restoratively. And um, that's why I wrote Restoring Teaching was about trying to restore teacher respect, but it was also about by doing it through a model of uh, of working in the classroom, of connecting with students, of resolving conflict that kind of lets teachers match their practice with their purpose and also positions us as people who are highly skilled in that place in the society. I think it's time that we... Um, we had teachers out there who were who were respected at a level that perhaps they 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 were in the in the good old days for people like you and I, Henry, have been around the block a couple of times. Yeah, uh, perhaps even three times. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now, Adam, you spoke about working on schools with school culture. Uh, yeah. obvi- obviously, um, there are things that schools can improve in their culture. What are some of the things in working with schools you've noticed uh, as improvement areas? Yeah, I, I think that probably the first one is is an acknowledgement that we don't know what we're talking about when we're talking about culture. So when I, whenever I ask a, a room full of, say, principals, um, do they think that the culture of their school is important, everyone puts their hand up. And then when I randomly ask one of them to come out the front <laughs> and tell everyone what the correct definition of school culture is, everyone gets a little confused. And that, and that, for me, raises a really important point, which is if we think the culture of our school is important, but we don't know how to define it, how do we work on it? So we get clear on helping people understand that culture is a behaviour, is is kind of a collective noun for behaviours. And it's a set of behaviours that are demonstrated by uh, by all three stakeholder groups in a school community. So that's your, your staff, it's your students, and it's your parent and carer community. And schools that understand that there are always going to be, there's always going to be a trade-off in there between behaviours that we encourage and behaviours that we're currently tolerating um, are the ones that sort of get comfortable with the fact that nothing, not everything has to be perfect. But the ones that are successful are not necessarily the ones that reduce tolerated behaviours, but they have a methodology. So they've chosen a way of working on the tolerated behaviours, but being able to transfer them across to to become encouraged behaviours that we've all kind of agreed to. And that's where the the restorative practices thing steps in. If we can get clear about working the same way on culture, get clear about what culture is, then those schools tend to be the ones that get get a running start being able to improve conduct in their school. Mm. And and, and obviously, if if people are talking with you about that, Adam, they're they're keen to change. What are the blockers to cultural improvement in school? I'd suggest that chiefly amongst the blockers to cultural improvement of programs. So we've spent a really long time and, and to be honest, a really inordinate amount of resource um, implementing programs in our schools. And what we've got to do is kind of step back a little bit from the the impact of a program because a lot of programs are really well intended and they can do good things in schools for a, for a while. But then we've got to ask ourselves, how many of the programs that we've implemented in schools have lasted longer than, say, five or ten years? And there ain't many. So we keep going through this cycle of implementing a program, getting a couple of wins on the board, having it not really change an enormous amount, having people get frustrated with the amount of effort compared to the amount of change, and then deciding what we need to do is to reinvent another program. So we're saying don't do that. Um, We're saying put a culture in place where your programs, your 
stakeholders, uh, your people in your school have a chance to thrive, attend to the culture, and even your programs you put in there actually get their shelf life extended by that, and your people get enriched by it. And this is where it gets it gets kind of easy. And I think this is where something like restorative practices, which has been floating around as an option for schools for about 60 or 70 years now, has proven that it actually stands the test of time better than a lot of these programs. So I think we've got to change our thinking about the way we tackle conduct in schools. And if we can change our thinking to say, right, we've got a realisation here that, I'm, that I don't need to go down the, the program path again. Um, in fact, if I'm going to, I better get the culture right before I start. I think that's the, the biggest blocker is the, this treadmill that we're on around that. Mm. Now, with restorative practices, and you acknowledge this in, in, in your, in, on your website, uh, um, one, of the, one of the concerns some people have with it is, uh, and perhaps they don't understand it, is they think it's a soft option. And uh, That's right. you might like to respond to that. Yeah, and, and I totally get that, is because it doesn't, because what we say in a restorative model is that we're trying to get the kids to fix the harm rather than get punished. Um, now, it doesn't mean that a restorative model is absent of punishments and consequences, but there's a, a bit of a, a bit of a nuanced way of being able to think that through about the way that they can be applied within the model rather than just sort of flipping out to a, a punitive model when we're tired or when we've had enough. Um, but helping people understand, I guess the, the best example I can give you, Henry, is that I often in a restorative model if I had a kid who blows up, has a, has a lunchtime where he just loses the plot and does a bit of harm, I might bring that kid in, give him a chance to cool down. And while they've, once they've cooled down, I often used to walk in with just two post-it notes. And on one post-it note would have written, you and I are going for a walk. It's going to take 25 minutes. We're going to speak to these three people. We're going to get things sorted. And then on the other post-it note, I would say, you're going to miss three lunchtimes and I'm going to call your mum down for a meeting. And I would say to the kid, here's the two options. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Tell me which one we're doing. And many of our kids who we might in schools refer to as being frequent flyers, they pick (laughs) the punishment. They pick the punishment. Um, And it it takes three days compared to 25 minutes, but they pick the punishment. Why? Because that's the soft option. They've seen off that kind of punishment before. It's far easier to do that than it is to actually be confronted by the impact of a behaviour on other people in an environment that says, we better fix that. We've got, we've got some work to do. So restorative practices is far, far from being the soft option. It's actually the most confronting, challenging, and thereby the best learning opportunity for young people. Mm, good point. Couldn't have, couldn't have made it clearer myself. Now, the last uh, 15 months now, um, we've been in COVID uh, pandemic mm. times. You've been still working with schools. What have you noticed out there in our schools, communities? Yeah, it's been a it's been a fascinating um, observation. Sometimes it's hard to observe because you're you're sort of in the middle of it, in the thick of it yourself as well. So you're sort of wondering how valid sometimes your your observations are. But I, I think I, I guess particularly being um, on Victorian based and particularly with a lot of the Victorian schools and doing multiple lockdowns and um, multiple transitions to online or remote learning. Um, I think what I noticed the first time around was schools went very heavy content oriented, which means it was about how do we get the activities for learning to the kids. And I think it overwhelmed people. I I think that it overwhelmed parents. I think that it frustrated kids. Um, And I think that it sort of dragged teachers away from any sort of joy in their work. Um, Whereas I think the smartest ones sort of realised that it was actually for connection. 
And if we could keep the connection, which is what a classroom's for, it's to learn through connection. Um, if we can keep the connection thing alive, then um, then we can still got a chance to have some great learning happen. I saw a teacher who introduced her class to a new puppy, um, and, in, and she <laughs> wandered around the backyard with an iPad. And um, and then the, the class, when she came back inside, she asked the class to commence a, a creative writing activity on. I think it was the puppy's name was Clyde. And what happens if Clyde gets out today? What's Clyde's day like? And she said it was the best work they produced across the whole of uh, remote learning. And I think it was because she fostered connection and um, and she leveraged that connection for access to the content or the or the the, um, the learning piece. So I think schools that are hitting that balance and getting that right are the ones that are having the most success with it. Yeah, good point. Tom, uh, we need to take a short break. Uh, Adam, can you hold the line? We can do that. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm in the middle of a discussion with Adam Voigt, who's the founder and CEO of Real Schools. Welcome back, Adam. Good to be with you, Henry. Now, Adam, you, you do publish a, a lot of good bites out there to the community, educational community. You've got a segment called Home Truths. Uh, tell mm. us about that one first. Uh, what was the inspiration for that, uh, that segment called Home Truths? Yeah, we've been running Home Truths for a few months now, and it was, uh, I guess the inspiration was to try to talk into that whole idea of thinking about culture differently and um, to perhaps give people bite-sized examples and provocations around that. So we talked to it about being messages around school culture that you might not necessarily want to hear, but you need to. And um, so every week I send out a Home Truth on a, on a Friday. Um, the one tomorrow, actually, that we're, that we're sending out is around pre-mortems. So it's about saying instead of waiting for a, to conduct a post-mortem on a lesson or a program that a school's tried to implement and going, what went wrong? we're saying imagine that it goes wrong imagine there's a death (laughs) what would what would be the likely cause and i think too often in schools we plan for a perfect world and schools just ain't perfect um anything can go wrong they're diverse they're unpredictable um and if we can start to do some of that um thinking ahead about what would be the the risks that we can face then we can you know actually do something about that and give our give our ambitions a chance of being realised. So, um, yeah, we, we encourage people to just think a little bit differently about the, about the work that they're doing culturally in their school. Mm. And the choice of title, Home Truths, is always an implication in that, that uh, with the Home Truth, that it's either a message for which we're not aware or it's a message that we weren't in the first place uh, really wanting to hear. Yeah, I think that's probably the second part is probably where most of the inspiration came from because I actually, when I send out, every week that I send out a home truth, we get lots of replies from people and it's often people saying, you know, I've been thinking about this. Yeah, and so I think a lot of the things that we're, saying that we're even perhaps kidding ourselves a little bit of thinking that they're things that people haven't thought about before they often have but we're not the thing is we're thinking about it we're not talking about it so we're trying to bring some of those really important things that are mulling around in the heads of people who are experienced and and learned in schools we're trying to bring them out so that people will talk about them in staff rooms talk about them in executive team meetings and perhaps even make some decisions that will um that will push our education system in a different direction. Mm, good point. And uh, yes, home truths are good things to, for us to, to, to get our head around. Now, some of the other things, you've had these uh, pieces, and I've, I found a couple here. I'm sure you'll remember what you wrote, but one you sent out some time ago, but it's a damn good one. Choosing forks. I, I love the, the proverb on which that's uh, based. 
Yeah, choosing forks was about this whole sort of, you know, sometimes we think that there's a, a fork in the road that needs to be taken. Uh, we've either got to go this direction or we've got to go in that direction. And sort of as I mentioned before around some schools think that it's a matter of I've got to choose a behaviour program or I could choose restorative practices. Um, not true. Um, you can actually choose the fork. You could have both. <laughs> and, um, so, and we actually think that, you know, for most of our schools, we've got many schools, for instance, that are running restorative practices and also running things like, uh, positive behaviour for learning or you know, school-wide positive behaviour. And what they're finding is that, that, as I mentioned before, that shelf life of the program is extended by planting it in a culture that's restorative. Um, and they're actually telling us also that some of their other programs are kind of being strengthened and being embedded more deeply as a result of the kids being in an environment where they just feel safe in the classroom and there's pattern and there's process that we've all agreed to about how we're going to handle the inconsistencies and the conflicts and the problems. So it's not about saying you need to have one or the other it's, it's about saying can one serve the other and um and we think that's what restorative practices does so we want to stop schools from i guess the the provocation in that little home truth is we want to stop schools thinking that they either have to do a program or they do restorative practices um and perhaps that that old idea of choosing both can be it can apply to uh, some other areas of school leadership too Mm, and it's, I guess, uh, it boils down also, Adam, to the point of trying to get a win-win rather than accepting a win-loss. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's where um, we we too often fall for that trap in schools because a lot of society is a win-loss scenario um, or it's a good-bad scenario. We think a lot about whether the outcome of something was good or bad and therefore we judge the whole thing on whether the outcome was good or bad. Schools aren't really about Outcomes. I know that's sort of some a bit hard to hear sometimes after you know thirty odd years of outcomes based education, but school really is about the process that you're exposing the kids to. And if we can say we're going to be relentless about reflecting on little adjustments in the process to make the experience for our kids more challenging and more enriching, then they'll turn out fine. We don't need to worry so much about outcomes and thresholds and and benchmarks. Um, So we just firmly believe that that, that's a really important um, metaphor for our students, for our schools to understand, um, and that that's why that kind of thinking is – is so important. We think it applies in a lot of different areas of get out of the idea that schools need to be adversarial, that someone needs to win, someone needs to lose, that we can, we can all thrive. Mm. Teacher fitness. Now you make a confession in that one, don't you? Yeah, Yeah. Um, I think the whole idea of um, of fitness and well-being is is something that, um, as I mentioned before, Amy Green's been talking enormous an enormous amount around. And teacher fitness for for us is not about saying that as a you need to be physically fit and strong. You don't have to be. You know, I'm certainly not one that would be you know rocking up to school in the um, in the the size medium polo shirt and um, with the biceps bulging um but it's about saying can we take some time to just think about what puts us in the best state to do the the really hard work of teaching and for some of us it's about you know um, making sure that we are eating better or that we are getting out some physical movement into your life because i don't know about you but at the end of a full day of teaching i i can be pretty leg weary as well as head weary Mm. um so it's about being conscious of what it is that allows you to get into a great state it's not about remembering the lines or torturing yourself um you know rock stars don't before a concert you know memorize go over the lines of their songs they they get themselves in a state you know some meditate and some use other substances to get them in a state but, <laughs> um, do. but it's about 
being really attentive to your state and being attentive as teachers to our physical state is something that's worth doing occasionally. Mm. Time's on the wing, but I thought one of the great ones you've got too here, and they're all wonderful, is the big bad world, and it's the world uh-huh. of perfectionism, isn't it? Yeah, and and the big bad world was also a, a real provocation about the fact that you know, we, we sometimes trick ourselves into believing things that are true that maybe aren't. Um, one of them is that, you know, well, you know, we have to cat, we have to make sure that kids are, for instance, given a, a punishment or a consequence when they do the wrong thing because that's the way the big bad world is, isn't it? You know, if you head out into the world and speed in your car, you're going to lose your license. And I like to just sometimes stop at that point when that comes up in, in say, a professional learning day in school and just go, really? You know, is that is that really true? And so, did anyone here on that while they drove to school today um, think that at some stage you crept three kilometres over the speed limit? And most people put their hand up and say, "Yeah, I probably did at some point." You know, um, but the truth is that very rarely do I find a room where anyone got caught. So most of us are doing the right thing most of the time, not because there are consequences for doing the wrong thing, but because we're in an environment where we've learned to care about the way our behaviour impacts other people. Most of us don't speed dangerously because we really don't want to inflict that sort of horrible potential consequence on either ourselves, our families or someone else's. Um, It's not because of the threat of a a $200 fine, um, chiefly. So what we're asking people is to consider that when we put systems of control in our school, systems of control and perhaps punishment as well, where we're trying to catch kids all the time, one, it's a lot of hard work. You need a lot of speed cameras to catch everyone speeding all the time. Um, But rather than do all of that labour, could we create an environment where they're just more likely because they kind of know that their behaviours, if they choose to do something that's dangerous or reckless, that it could really have a, se- a severe impact on themselves, on their families and on other people. And they, that's the best protective factor that you can put in place in a, in, a, in a school and the best way to encourage the right behaviours rather than obsess over catching people doing the wrong behaviours. Mm. And it's an excellent point on which we can uh, conclude today's interview. Uh, Adam, as always, it's a great pleasure having you with us. If people want to get in touch with you, um, how would they do that? Yeah, easy to get in touch with us. They can go and have a snoop around the around the website. Um, so if they head to realschools.com.au, they'll see what we're we're on about. They can give us a call on one three hundred seven eight nine four double two, or they can email us at info at realschools.com.au, and um, they should know that we're we're super keen to, to to work with their school and to help them get all the benefits of the schools that we partner with. Absolutely, uh, always a pleasure chatting with you, Adam. You're a great advocate for better schools. That was Adam Voigt, the founder. And CEO of Real Schools. Listeners, we'll take a short break. 